Acts chapter 24. Continuing our study here through the book of Acts, as we mentioned here the last few weeks, the subject that we're in, Paul being on trial, takes up the rest of the book of Acts. This is the theme that's going to be happening here to the end of the book of Acts. And what Paul is doing is working his way up the governmental ladder, if you will, through the different court systems and the different trials. And that's what we see going on. What happened the last couple weeks is that Paul was taken over to Caesarea to be tried by the governor Felix. And as he was there, Paul got a chance to present his side and the Jews got a chance to present their side. What we're going to see here this morning is that Felix doesn't want to make a decision. And this goes on for a couple years. Now, we have to stop and kind of ask, where do we want to close today with? Because this is where it gets kind of tough. We can either do just the first few verses here through verse 27. Or once we get into chapter 25, chapters 25 and 26 go together. And it's really hard to cut that out. So what I was thinking is, these verses 22 through 27 are so straightforward. And I absolutely love it. So we're just going to do 22 through 27 this morning, and it's just a straightforward presentation of the gospel message. Now, with that being said, let's start out with a simple question. When did you get saved? Now, think about that. When did you get saved? I know some people that can tell me the exact day that they got saved. I know somebody that can actually tell me the exact time that they got saved. I know a lot of people, it's more of a season, a season of life. They remember the season of life. When they got saved. You know, I can remember when I first confessed Christ. And I remember the growing process that happened after that. That season of life that I was in. But when did you get saved? Now, here's the problem with asking that question. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Kind of makes you squirm a little bit. Sometimes it makes you wonder. Some of you are thinking, I finally got somebody to come to church. And the first thing he does is say, when did you get saved? Isn't that why we're here? Just say, are you saved? See, the point of today's message is Paul, for two years, gets a chance to witness to Felix. And for two years, Paul's basically saying, are you saved? Now, as Christians, this should be our number one priority. Number one priority is, are you born again? Are you saved? That should be our main focus. But yet we get so easily distracted off things, and that really doesn't become our main focus. So today, this message, verses 22 through 27 of Acts 24, is pretty just straightforward. Are you saved? Let's talk about this. Verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, remember the way refers to Christianity, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. Remember, Lysias is the Roman uh, the Roman uh, soldier that actually had Paul under custody. So Felix is saying, listen, I've got Paul's side, I've got the Jews' side. Now when the Roman commander comes, I'll get his side. Verse 23, so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. After some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, we also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do a favor, left Paul bound. Remember last week, we talked a little bit about the background of Felix. Felix is the only guy in, in the Roman history that was a slave that actually became a governor. And secular history said that he was a governor, but yet he governed like a slave. He was very fleshly. And you see this in verse 26. He just wanted a bribe. He just wanted money. So for two years, he kind of just keeps this thing going. He listens to Paul. He wants money. And, and it just kind of just keeps this system going here. 
Finally, what happened about two years after this is that there was such an awful riot between the Greeks and the Jews. Rome stepped in and said, Felix, you're not capable of governing this area. And they removed him from that leadership position. Now, but what I want to talk about is this. Verse 24. Felix and his wife send for Paul and hear him concerning the faith in Christ. There is an attraction to Christianity. There is. I see this all the time. People are attracted to this message of Christianity. Doesn't mean they accept it, doesn't mean they live it, but they're attracted to the message. And they'll pop in for a while, then they'll disappear. They'll call for a while, they'll contact for a while, then they'll disappear. I say this lovingly, please don't take this insult. I call them boomerang Christians. They leave, but they come back. And when they come back, you better duck. There's an attraction. People desire this. They see something. They know there's something missing in their life. So they're attracted to this message of Christianity. And so they do. They pop out to church, what have you. Well, as they're attracted to this, the problem is when you come to get to know it, verse 25, you start talking about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. No one wants to hear that. If you're taking notes, first point, if you want to grow your church, don't mention righteousness, self-control, or judgment. If you want your church to grow, mention these four things. Heaven, love, healing, and prosperity. Those four things, people will come every Sunday to hear that. Problem with that, that's not the message of Christianity. And this is what makes today so straightforward. There is an attraction to the things of the Lord. But to really understand who Jesus is, you also have to come to the realization of these four terms, right? There are three terms, I should say. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment. What is the real message of Christianity? The first point that you see here in verse 25 is righteousness. The word righteousness means just to be made right. That's all it means. So in Christ, I'm made right. I'm a sinner. I'm not going to heaven. I deserve hell. Through Christ's righteousness, I'm now made right, and I get to go to heaven. Now, that sounds simple and straightforward enough. Problem is, we have a, we have a difficulty with that concept. A couple things with that. Number one, the Bible teaches us in Romans 3, there is none that are righteous. None. You bring absolutely nothing to the table in your walk with Christ. Nothing. You have to come to this conclusion. There is nothing redeemable or loving in you where Jesus looked down from heaven and said, I want him. I want him because of this. No, there is nothing in you. Now, in this world that we live in today, we're constantly trying to build everybody up and everybody's special. When it comes to Christianity, you are not special. You're a heathen, awful sinner. I'm the same way. Once again, now you're thinking, this is the Sunday I showed up. You had an extra hour today. An extra hour. You could have done anything you wanted, and you come today to be told you're a heathen, awful sinner. But that's the righteousness of God. See, until you understand the righteousness of God and how awful, despicable we are, the righteousness of God means nothing to you. Because if you think you're redeemable in some way, well then, hey, Jesus, thanks for dying on the cross. You put that last puzzle piece in for me. Couldn't quite get to heaven just on my own, but you really helped bridge that gap. No, there was nothing, absolutely nothing in you that was redeemable in any way whatsoever where Jesus said, I want them. The Bible makes it clear in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What happens is we live in this world where we think sometimes we have to earn our way. There's nothing you can do. Or I need to get myself cleaned up before I come to the Lord. You can't clean yourself up. 
There is no one who does good, no, not one. So when you realize how despicable we are, wow, the righteousness of Jesus means even more. I've shared this story with you before, but when I was at college, I went to Defiance College. This is actually before I was in Defiance College. I had another professor, and he taught like a humanities, like a history class. He made it very clear from day one that he was not a Christian, and there was just me and another guy in the class that were believers. And throughout the whole semester, there was constant give and take and debate between him picking on Christianity and hopefully us trying to take a stand for it. Well, at the end of the semester, you had to meet with him one-on-one in his office to go through the final grades, etc. So I met with him in his office, and his grading scale was 94 to 100, gives you an A. So I showed up, and he said, your final grade was, and I can't remember, it was either a 92 or a 93. So I got a B. So he says, your final grade was 92, 93. He goes, but you had good attendance, uh, you had good discussion in class, so we're we're just going to go ahead and make that an A. So I said to him, I said, wow, I got an A. He looked at me and goes, no, you didn't get an A. He goes, I gave you an A. Now, that heathen taught me, (laughs) that, that professor taught me the greatest lesson I've ever heard in grace. I did not get an A. He gave me an A. See, I'm righteous. And if you're born again and saved here today, you're righteous. Because Jesus did it for you. Not on anything you did. So, first step here, Paul deciding to talk to Felix, the governor, about righteousness. That's really kind of dumb. Felix wasn't righteous. We know that. But the problem was, at this time frame, Felix probably thought he was a pretty righteous guy. He's the governor of a Roman province. He was a slave. He worked his way up. So he needed to hear that there's none who are righteous. No, not one. There is nothing in us that's redeemable in any way whatsoever. We are sinners. First step. Next one he talked about, verse 25, self-control. Now, we don't like to hear about self-control. Because in the world we live in today... We don't need self-control because we have allowed ourselves to do whatever we want. There's always a reason and an excuse. We do not expect people to stay pure until marriage. That's just too difficult nowadays. So that's out the window. We don't expect people to really hold their temper back anymore. If somebody says something, you have every right now to respond. We don't expect you to not look at stuff online because everything is one click away. It's so easy. It's so simple. And we don't expect you to stay away from the drugs, the alcohol, and other type of stuff. Because as long as you just do it in your house and no one knows about it, it's really okay. This idea of self-control is going completely out the window. If you're born again and saved here today, the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control. God still has a moral standard on your life that He says what is best. It doesn't matter what the world thinks is right. It doesn't matter what the world says is now acceptable. We're not living according to the standards of the world. This is the problem a lot of times with the church. We see people get, quote-unquote, saved. They still dress like the world. They still talk like the world. They still act like the world. And they still live like the world. What exactly did they get saved from then? They're still there. They have no righteousness. They have no self-control. Now, once again, Paul is speaking to Felix, the governor, power. He could do whatever he wanted. As we mentioned earlier in the introduction here, he was the slave that became the governor, and the, and the secular history says he still acted like a slave, meaning whatever fleshly he desired, he wanted. And Paul decided to speak to him about self-control. Wow. I don't know how many times people contact me and they say, Pastor, I didn't want to, but I couldn't help myself. 
And I always stop them at that time and say, are you born again and saved? Yes. Okay, well then the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control. As a battle, as a struggle, it is a fight. But it is in you to be able to say no to what you need to say no to and yes to what you need to say yes to. You have that self-control. God has given you that ability through the Spirit to be able to take a stand. Is that a struggle? Yeah. Do we fail? Sometimes we do. But there is that self-control to do those things. Now, think about this for a second. How often do we fail in self-control issues? I never want to do that again. I never want to say that again. I never want to respond in anger like that. I don't want to look at that. And we have this mindset of where we don't want to. In just a couple short months, it's going to be January 1st. And what's going to happen on January 1st? Everybody's going to make a New Year's resolution. It's really the dumbest day of the year to make a New Year's resolution. It's cold, it's dark, and that's when we're going to start making big life changes. If you really want a day to make changes, it's today. You magically were given an extra hour. Do you realize that? So if you are the person that says, I don't have time to get in the Word, what would you do with your extra hour today? I don't have time to serve. What would you do with your extra hour today? You were given a magical Willy Wonka extra hour. Take it and run with it. Problem is, self-control. God love you all. Most of you probably said I get to sleep an extra hour. Most of you don't have a problem with self-control with sleep. That's not where you're struggling. We make excuses. Sin is no longer my fault. It's the way I was raised. It's what you did. You pushed me to respond that way. You can't expect me to act this way. Self-control. And this is something that needs to be taught straightforwardly to us. And what's the last one? Judgment. Verse 25. Oh, man. Church Growth 101, don't mention judgment. Don't mention hell. Don't mention an eternity away from God. No. No, don't even go there. We don't want to hear that. Paul, standing before the governor of this Roman area, says, I'm going to talk to you about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Whether you believe it or not, you are an eternal being, and you will live on forever in either heaven or hell. You are going to stand before Christ one day. If you are born again and saved, you're standing before Christ in something called the judgment seat of Christ, which is basically a job evaluation, a job review. You're saved, you're in, but Jesus stops and says, how did you live for me on that earth? The next one is something called the great white throne judgment. You will stand before Jesus. And as you stand before Jesus, you are not saved. And what happens is God, the Bible says, get out the books. And the books are the works of your life. And Jesus will basically say something to this effect. Okay, you chose to reject me, so now your eternal status will be based on what you did. So he gets out the works of your life to find out, are you worthy of heaven based on you? Now here's the problem with that. Didn't we already describe in verse 25, we're not righteous. Some of you here today still think you got righteousness in you. You're a decently good person. I mean, you, you, you may not be at church every Sunday, but you try. You may not read every day, but you try. You try to pray. You even serve some in the back. You help little old ladies across the street. You're a decent person. Problem is, we compare and we equalize the words righteousness and moral. Moral people don't go to heaven. Righteous, saved people go to heaven. I'm telling you right now, I'm saved. Some days I'm not moral. 
But God still loves me, and I'm righteous through Him, through Christ, not through me. Now, this should be basic, right? I was talking the other day with my boys. We're sitting at the table, and we're doing devotions. And we get to the whole idea of works. How do you get to heaven? Got to be through Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's right. Got to be through Jesus Christ, what He did on the cross. So we got all the basics of Christianity down, right? So I go through them, and I say, can you do enough good to get to heaven? Elias, firstborn. No, Caleb's not. Judah, secondborn. No, Coast not. Ken and thirdborn says, yeah, I think you can. So I said, okay, talk about this. He goes, no. I said, he goes, I, I think you can be good to get there. And I said, Ken, how do you get to heaven? He goes, through Jesus Christ. I said, so are you saying you can get there on your own? He goes, I, I, you know, sometimes I think you can be good enough. And I would sit there and we kind of joke about that and think, okay, it's this little kid. I think sometimes we still have that thought in the back of our mind that I'm a decently good person, and that when I stand before God, that He's going to look at my heart and realize I attempted, I tried, I was moral, I tried to be a good person. I didn't fully grasp the whole Jesus cross Christianity thing, and He'll understand, and no, He won't. You know why? Because part of my obligation is to... Clearly, <laughs> I was going to say clearly communicate, and I couldn't even say it. Did you catch that? <laughs> Part of my obligation is to clearly communicate the gospel message to you. A lot of what I do as a pastor is just destroy your excuses. God love you. That's what we try to do. And I do it to my life, too. You're going to stand before God. And as you stand before God... There has to be a decision at one time where you said, I either accept or reject. What did Felix do? Well, verse 25, after he heard these three things, Felix was afraid. Now, what are you going to do with that fear? Is that fear going to drive you to know more about the Lord? Is that fear going to drive you to say, my life's not right and I need to get it right with the Lord? Or is that fear going to drive you away and be the proverbial head in the sand? I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it. See, this is the problem sometimes with Christianity, is the gospel message that we present is this gospel message of you have a hole in your heart, your life is not fulfilled, and your life is empty, and so you need Jesus. I used to present that gospel message. And the problem was you run into people whose life is fulfilled, they don't have a hole in their heart, and they're actually pretty good. And so what would happen is they would say, hey, you know what, my life feels pretty good, Pastor, I don't, I am Okay. Yes, but you have a hole in your heart. You have an emptiness in your life that only can be filled by Jesus. No, I really don't feel that empty. Good wife, good kids, good house, good job, good health. I'm pretty full. The real gospel message is righteousness. You have none. Jesus will give it to you. The real gospel message is sin. You are one. Jesus wants to take that from you. And that's what we need to present. And this hasn't changed. Can you go back with me real quick to uh, John 16? John 16. We see Paul here presenting to Felix this idea of self-control, righteousness, and judgment. Let's look what Jesus said just a few decades earlier. John 16. John 16. Jesus, as he's getting ready to go to the cross, he's giving his last marching orders, if you will, to his disciples. And he wants to tell them about the role of the Holy Spirit. John 16. Let's go ahead and pick it up here in verse 7. 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. This is Jesus speaking. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they did not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. That's what Jesus said. He says the Holy Spirit's job is to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. To put this in different terms, the Holy Spirit's job is to make us feel uncomfortable. It's to make us stop and say, I'm not right with the Lord. There's this this sin issue that I need to deal with. There's this righteousness issue I need to deal with. There's judgment coming I need to deal with. It is not my job as a pastor or the job of Harvest Fellowship Church to make you feel comfortable in your walk with Jesus Christ. It is my job to say, are you saved? Yes, then amen. Let's help you go deeper in your walk with Christ and your marriage and your life. And you know what? It's going to be uncomfortable. If you're not saved, then I want to clearly present to you what salvation is. Think about what Christ said. Think about how Jesus described a relationship with him. The road is narrow and difficult and few will find it. He says in John 16, you're going to have many tribulations. Jesus did not die on the cross for you so that way you could be happy. He died on the cross for you because there's a sin righteousness problem that had to be dealt with. And it's our job as a group of believers to clearly communicate this message to the world. And to be honest, as a church, meaning the church in the world today, we're failing in that. Because what happens with the church is we try to present sometimes this message of God just loves you. And he does just love you. That is truth. But there's a sin, righteousness, judgment issue that has to be dealt with. And I'm just going to be straightforward with you. I know some of you real well. Some of you I've never met before. Some of you I know decently. Some of you I don't know where you stand with the Lord. And I'm not doing my job unless I come up here and clearly say, Are you saved? Have you got this righteousness thing figured out? Because it's not you, it's him. Have you got the sin thing figured out? Is there sin in your closet that you're kind of just denying? Do you got this judgment thing? You you have to stand before the Lord. You know, we can sit up here and we can joke, we can laugh, but really it comes down to, are you saved? You know, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, Today is the day of salvation. What did Felix say back in Acts 24? He was afraid, sent him away, and look what he said in verse 25. Go away for now, when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. You know what the most convenient time is to come to know Christ? Right now. Today is the day of salvation. What happens when you reject that? Hebrews 3 says this, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Our heart becomes hard to this message because we have heard it. Some of you have been raised in the church since the day you were born and you've heard it all. Okay, but are you living it? Are we truly living it? Can you go with me? Matthew 13, please. Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is the parable of the sower and the seed. Rich and I talk out here a lot that this parable describes everything. (laughs) Everything you need to know about presenting the gospel and people getting saved. It's all in here. Matthew 13, verse 3. 
Then he, meaning Jesus, spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell in stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the best commentary for the Bible is the Bible itself. Verses 18 through 23 breaks this down. Now, we're going to get to that in a second, but let's just get the, the points out. When you go present the gospel, 25% of people just don't care. Just right off the bat, 25% reject. Now, I struggled with that. When I first got saved, I couldn't imagine anybody rejecting. And it took me years to come to this point of realizing there's going to be 25% that just stop and say, I don't care. You know what that leaves? That leaves 75% that claim to be Christians. Now, let's not take these numbers and set them in stone legalistically, but there's a lot of truth to this. If you go look at all the surveys, about 75% of Americans claim to be Christian, don't they? Isn't that fascinating? Do you really think that 75% of Americans are Christians? See, what about the next group? We've already talked about the first one. Let's jump over to verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. So our description of verse 4, the commentary is verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes, snatches away which was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. This is the person that rejects it. They don't want it. Okay, what about the people that fell, the seeds that fell in stony places? Verse 5, that commentary, verse 20. He who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately rejoices in it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. This is that person that shows up. They are excited about the Lord. They've never heard or seen anything like this. They want to get involved in every small group. They want to be involved in every study. And what happens about a month or two later, they disappear. They spring up quickly, have no root, and die off. I've used this example with you many times. When we planted the grass seed in our yard, when we built our house, the first grass seed to come up was the seed that fell on the driveway. And at a certain time frame, you could have went out, and my driveway was lush and green. And the yard was dead. The grass in the driveway died, and now the grass in the yard lives. It had no root. Springs up quickly, has no root. I hate to say this. You see this all the time. People are going through a difficult time in life. Maybe a marriage situation. Maybe a life situation. Maybe just that Sunday morning of feeling empty. They pop out to church. The worship touches them. Hopefully the message touches them. The unconditional love of Christ touches them. And there is this excitement. But then verse 20 and 21, life gets tough and they stumble away. you realize how tough life is? Felix said, come back at a more convenient time. I've come to the conclusion that Christianity is not convenient in any way whatsoever. If you're going to pick a religion based on convenience, Christianity would have to be near the bottom of the list. It really is. We try to make it sound so easy. And it is easy. Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. We try to make it sound so simple. It is simple. Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. For you that have been walking with the Lord for many years, it's tough to live a godly life in an ungodly world. A simple religion would be one that would basically tell you, hey, do your best, try a little bit here and there, and no matter what you're in. Ah, that sounds good. 
Christianity? Jesus says simply, I want everything. When you give me everything, we can talk. In the society we live in, we don't like to let go of things. We don't like to let go of rights and privileges. For some reason, we like to hang on to these awful, horrible things. We hang on to unforgiveness. We hang on to bitterness. We hang on to a lukewarm walk with Christ. We hang on to secret sins that we only do in our house that no one will ever know. And we think these things are going to help us feel better and take us deeper in our walk with the Lord. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Christianity is not convenient. Have you ever had to forgive somebody who is really unforgivable? That's difficult. Have you ever had to let go of bitterness that you've held on to for years? That's tough. Have you ever had to, just between you and the Lord, say, No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to drink that drink. I'm not going to smoke that joint. I'm not going to look at that thing online. I'm not going to think those thoughts. I'm not going to lust. I'm just not going to do it. No one else knows. It's just between you and the Lord. That's hard to do because you can do those things privately. and No one will ever know. Christianity is tough. And so people come and there's that excitement, that joy. But a walk with the Lord? Jesus said himself, it's narrow. It's difficult. But the retirement is amazing. What about the next one? Next group, the stuff that fell among the thorns, verse 22. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. I'm just going to be honest with you. That is the majority of Christians probably today. That's the majority of them. Busy. Life's busy. They get choked out by the world. They get choked out by what? Well, you're working six, seven days a week, 12 hours a day. Now, some of you are doing that, and I know you're doing that, and that's tough. You've got to be careful. It doesn't start to choke you. You know what else chokes you? Kids. Sometimes, literally, they choke you. <laughs> Home remodeling projects choke you. The desire for time to get away from work choke you. Work chokes you, school chokes you, relationships choke you. There are so many things that we just don't look at as bad, but they deter you in your walk with Christ. And those things choke you out of a walk with the Lord. So we've already said 25%, they're not in, they reject it. That other 25% doesn't seem like they're in, so now we're down to 50. This 25%, They may be in, they may be not. I don't know. The Bible says they become unfruitful. We could sit here and debate this or not debate this. But basically, they're a group of people that confess Christ with their mouth, but their life does not back it up. And name their believers. What does Matthew 7.22 say? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And Jesus will say, away from me. I never knew you. That's a tough verse. That's a tough verse. Be careful that you're not choked out, verse 22, with life. We're down to one group now, 25%, verse 23, but he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word, understands it, and deed bears fruit and produces some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. 25% get it. And of that 25%, one-third produce 100-fold, which really means about 8% really are living with everything they have for the Lord. Isn't that sad? Now ask yourself, you're in one of these categories. And if you want to create your fifth category, you can't. You either reject the message, you don't care. Or you show up with joy, but you have no root and you'll stumble. 
Or you, you believe it, you hear it, you speak it, but life's just really busy, so there's really not a walk with the Lord. I mean, there's this casual relationship with Christ. Or you're 25%, you're in. Now, if you're in 25%, are you the 100, the 60, or the 30? Because what happens is a lot of people that I know are saved, there's no doubt about it, but where's the walk? Where's the fire? Where's that excitement? It's a tough message because it's an honest message. You have to stop and say, where am I? What's the litmus test for where am I in the Lord? To me, there's always about five things that really show a walk in relationship with Christ. Just ask yourself this. How's your prayer life? How's your time in the Word? How's your time of service slash fellowship? How's your time of evangelism? What's your worship like? Now think about that. Just honestly ask yourself. I, I have a pastor that I knew did this. He said, let's ask this. So he asked the church. He goes, just, just rank them on 1 to 10. He goes, how's your prayer life? So he goes, rank that on 1 to 10. How's your time in the Word? Rank that on 1 to 10. How's your time of service slash fellowship? Rank that 1 to 10. How's your time of evangelism? Rank that 1 to 10. He goes, how's your time in worship? He goes, rank that 1 to 10. He goes, now the majority probably stayed right around that. Uh, and then he goes, take them and average it out. And he goes, you guys probably all were around that four, five, six mark, weren't you? And he goes, and the church said, yeah. He goes, congratulations, you're lukewarm. Jesus just spit you out of his mouth. Isn't that serious? That's no longer serious to us, is it? Do you, do you realize what a lukewarm believer looks like to Jesus? He's disgusted by them. See, we have come to accept mediocrity in our walk with Christ because we're better than the unsaved world. We have come to accept lukewarmness because the on-fire ones, they're just a little crazy. We have totally lost the point of what being a Christian is. Completely lost it. So Paul, standing before Felix and deciding to talk about righteousness, self-control, and judgment, Paul gets it. He gets it. And we need to make sure, do we get it ourselves too? Now, this is where normally as a pastor, I would do this. I drop this one on you. You don't know when you're going to die, right? That's what we normally do as a pastor. You may not make it home today. You don't know when your last breath is. And we do those things to make you think about eternity. The problem is, most of us are not going to think about eternity till we're flat on a bed. Where life is slowly starting to seep away. Because the problem is, you guys have come out to church... Possibly hundreds, if not thousands of times in your life. It's not like you're getting in your car today and your hand is shaking because you're scared. I hope I make it home. No, you're probably going to make it home. A lot of you are coming in and you may not be feeling 100%, but it's not like every breath you're thinking, is this my last breath? You're not thinking that way. So we say those things, trying to make us think about eternity, and the problem is we don't think about eternity. Some of us right now are thinking, it's a quarter after 11. But it's really a quarter after 12. And that's why I feel hungry, because it's really a quarter after 12. Real, real quick side story. This is my favorite time change story. Um, I was in Defiance uh, years ago, and I had just done a hospital visit, and it was a Wednesday, and I was getting ready to come back to church, and I had a few minutes before I had to be back to church. And I graduated from Defiance College, so I thought, you know what, I just want to swing through the college, kind of just walk through and see what everything was. So I was, went to the campus, and I'm getting ready to walk in Defiance College's library. 
really have a really beautiful library there. And so as I'm walking up to it, there's two college guys walking up with me. We're not walking together. We just happen to be walking up at the same time. We get up to the doors, and it's a little after 5.30. And the library closed at 5.30. So no big deal. Library's closed. So I overhear the two guys talking. They're right beside me. And the one guy says to the other guy, hey, library's closed. He goes, closed? What time's it closed? He goes, closed a little after 5.30. This has been a few years ago. The other guy looks at his watch and goes, um, it's only 4.30. Now, this is Wednesday, and it was in the spring, and the time change had just happened on Sunday. So the guy looked at him and goes, it's 5.30. And the guy with the watch goes, no, my watch says it's 4.30. It's 4.30. And the guy said this. He looks at his friend, and he goes, what, what about the time change? And the other guy stopped and says, deadpan. He goes, what time change? What are you talking about? <laughs> I've come to the conclusion. I don't know who that guy is that didn't know about the time change, but I want to be his best friend. Anybody that can get through three days without realizing they lost an hour is the guy that I just want to be around in life. How did he not be late for some... I am amazed by that man, and I wish I would have met him. I, would have, I just wish I would have known him deeper. No segue. Back to hell. Um, really what it comes down to is this. We, we don't know when we're going to die. And, and to prove this point, look here in our Acts 24... We're talking about Felix. We're talking about Drusilla. Drusilla is his wife. Felix, we already said, in two years is going to lose his job as governor. Riots start breaking out between the Greeks and the Jews. He can't control it, and Rome says enough is enough. Well, Drusilla is his wife. It's actually his third wife. And we actually know what happens to Drusilla. Secular history makes it very clear what happens to her. A couple years after this event, when she was talking to Paul, Drusilla decided to go on a shopping trip throughout Europe. You can check this out. And she, tried to, and she decided to go shopping at a little town called uh, Pompeii. And as she was at Pompeii, Mount Vesuvius erupted, and she died there. And the reason we know this is because she was one of the highest-ranking Romans to die in the destruction that happened at Pompeii. Now, she's on this nice little shopping trip enjoying Europe. I doubt she was thinking about heaven and hell. But it isn't interesting to note that just a couple of years before her tragic death at Vesuvius and Pompeii, she was clearly communicated the gospel message. Clearly communicated the gospel message. And it sure looks like clearly communicated the gospel message for years. I don't know. Did she accept? Did she reject? I don't know. See, this is the hard part. You don't know when you're going to die. So I started thinking about Pompeii. And Vesuvius there. And I've always kind of been fascinating a little bit about everything that happened. If you're a student of history, you know as the volcano erupted, it erupted with such a speed. And the people that died were actually encased. And when they died, they were shown and what their last stages of life were. And the grips that they were that it happened so quickly. So people and are covering their heads, they're covering each other, etc. It's a, it's a very actually troublesome thing to look at. But it's interesting, as they studied out Pompeii and they studied out what happened, there's this one room. I heard a pastor teaching this once, and I thought, you know what? Did he really take it and run with it, or is this true? So I looked it up, and it's true. There was this one basement that people went and hid as the volcano was erupting. And before the volcano hit them, so they came to this room. And what happened was there was two groups of people in this room. One was on one side, and one was on the other side. Two complete separate groups. The one group... And they're all in case, so you see what happened when they died. They all were holding each other, all holding each other along one wall. The other group on the other wall were all holding jewelry and gold. 
And they don't know for sure, we don't know who the two groups were, but they believed what happened was in this uh, fury of destruction, poor and rich both ended up in the same basement. Now, it could have been that the one group didn't have time to grab their stuff, but what it really looks like is the poor people held on to each other as destruction hit, and the rich people held on to their gold and jewelry. Now, think about that for a second. Seriously, what are you holding on to? I mean, what, what is it that, that you're grasping in this life? Because there is a sin problem. You are not righteous, and there's judgment coming. Now, if you're born again and saved here today, amen. Ask yourself, though, are you 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold? Ask yourself, are there things in your life that is just not right, and you're waiting for a more convenient time to get right with the Lord? Maybe you're here today, and you are not saved. I don't know what you're planning on doing for all of eternity, but I just want to make sure you abundantly know your righteousness will not give you entrance into heaven because you have no righteousness. Christ died on the cross to take care of your sins, and the Bible uses this fancy word, impute, which means to give. Jesus gives you His righteousness because you can't do it. So as I stand before you, I am a sinner. I am completely unrighteous. I lack self-control, and I'm facing a judgment of hell. But I believe what Christ did on the cross for me, and I ask for his righteousness. So even though I stand before you unrighteous, when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ on me. You must remember, it's not a head knowledge of believing in a God, believing even Jesus existed. It is a heart of saying, Lord, I have let go of everything, and I need you, I want you, I desire you, because it can't be me. This is just a straightforward, are you saved message. I don't know. This is also straightforward, if you are saved, are you living it? We have plenty of lukewarm, mediocre mediocre Christians. We don't need more. But we need our on-fire people that stop and say, I want to reach my community. I want to reach my coworkers. I want to reach my friends and family for Christ because I really don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And just as Paul had two years with Felix to present the gospel, you may be praying for a different job right now, and God may say, nah, you got a Felix. I'm going to spend a couple years there with them. You may be praying to get out of this family situation, and God may say, nah, I got you there to be a light and a witness to Felix. You may have friends and neighbors that you wish would just cease to exist. God says, nah, I got you there for a couple years to be a, because you got a witness to this Felix. Paul with his time, said, I'm just going to speak truth. Righteousness, sin, self-control. Holy Spirit, righteousness, sin, judgment. It's a great pattern. We don't hear it enough, and we need to speak straightforwardly and clearly on what this is. What I want to do here is, Marv, I'm going to get forward, come forward for the final song. As Marv and Sarah are singing the final song, Rich and I are going to be back in the back And call it whichever you want to call it. An altar call, time for prayer, it doesn't matter. We're going to be back there. If you have never come to a realization of who Jesus is, while they're doing the song, come back, we'll pray with you. We'll point you in the right direction of what a relationship with Christ is. Maybe you are saved and you stop and you say, Yeah, but I'm not where I need to be. Come back and ask for prayer. 
I won't be back there to be able to shake your hands as you guys leave, so thanks for coming today. Sarah, can you close us out with prayer? So Sarah will actually close you guys out with prayer as I'm back there praying with Rich. God bless you. Thank you for coming today. And I hope you realize the straightforwardness of this because it's a big deal. There's no reason to beat around the bush on this one. Where are you at in the Lord? That's all that matters. We'll give it over to Marvin and Sarah for the final song. Rich and I will be back there to pray with you guys.